Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of the word this hour and the message this day. We ask, Lord, that you'd open it up to us as we drive through these 11 verses. Help us to look at the scenery and capture what is around us. And then, Lord, let us find that key kernel that you have in it for us today. It'll be different for each of us, though I might seem to try to direct that. It will be something said to each of us that hopefully applies to our lives and then to the life that we have together. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We honor you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Many of you know that I have a good friend named Bo. Today we were out here at Food Pantry this week. I hope I'm allowed to say this, Debbie. If I'm not, you can call the Akron Food Bank and say I broke the rules. But uh, we were out there. I was doing nothing. I, I never do anything but walk around and act like I don't know what I'm doing. And everybody else was doing their thing. And I kept saying, is it okay with you if I don't do anything? And they said, yeah. So I just kept doing nothing. But uh, I walked around, and lo and behold, a lady came through with a little baby. And I said, what is your baby's name? And the baby's name was Bo. And I said, how do you spell that? B-E-A-U. That is how I spell Bo's name. I was amazed. Anyway, I told her, I said, that, dog's got, that baby's got the same name as my dog. And then after it came out of my mouth, I thought, well, that probably wasn't the best thing you could have said. Anyway, you know I've got this dog named Bo. So I get advertisements on my social media pages and things like that about dog things. They want to sell me vitamins, dog food, vet, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I saw one this week from a place, from a product called Wisdom Panel. Here's what Wisdom Panel is. This is, their, this is the ad that came across my, my page, the print. Ancestry, trait, and health insights you can trust. The most accurate dog DNA test. Wisdom panel. No more care better. Now, I want to tell you, you know, I never did. Remember for a while there we were getting all those ads about, you know, your, 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 what, what were the names of those things? We, they were on TV every minute. All those DNA tests, you remember that? And I know a lot of people that dove into that. I know people that dove in, and after they found out, they regretted <laughs> that they dove in. But I never did. I didn't do three and me or whatever it was. I didn't do any of that stuff because I just didn't care. But listen to what this ad said. No more care better. No, I, Bo, Bo has not missed a shot. He has not missed a meal. He has not missed anything, and I see that I'm caring for my dog good enough. I don't need to go get a DNA test so they can alert me to the fact that somewhere down the line I might have a problem. It's not that I don't care, but I don't care. <laughs> we'll cross those bridges when they come. The message today is when no one cares. Many, many years ago, the best pastor that I ever knew, the best preacher I ever knew, and I have not labeled too many people. In fact, I would say to you that he is the only person that I labeled as the best pastor and the best preacher ever. 
uh, called me up to serve. I wasn't in churches yet. I was in seminary. Called me up to help him out of the church uh, with a little bit of a youth pastor type job. And uh, I would go up there on Sunday nights and work with these kids, and we'd go to church, and he'd preach, and after church, I'd hang out with him for a while before I made the long trek back home. And I've known him my whole life, and he was always just the best. I, I, I could never attain to what, not even come close. He said to me one night when we were there alone, probably in reference to the question, how are things going? I said, uh, he said to me, you know, Joe, I've reached a point where if they don't care, I don't care. He's talking about people in his church. He said, I've reached a point where if they don't care, I don't care. I had never heard him talk like that. I think it's worth telling that he was just a few years away from retirement, and it's pretty common amongst preachers that when you get a few years away from retirement, you kind of settle down and sit back and, and let this thing run on its own. I've seen it happen many times. Bugged me that he said, if they don't care, I don't care. I want to talk to you today about caring. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekelia, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel that Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. I want you to note one thing in this verse. It's the second verse. Nehemiah asked. You know what I've observed? I've observed that people who don't care don't ask. Nehemiah asked. His brothers had come back from Jerusalem. It's the Babylonian captivity, and it happened 150 years, 140 years earlier. And he is the king's cupbearer, and his brother came back from being there, and he asked the question, how are things? Nehemiah asked. Why would he ask? And the reason I ask you why would he ask is for this reason. He was secure. The king's cupbearer? You, you, couldn't, you couldn't get any closer to power than that. You could got, not be more trusted than that. His life was set. You know, for some people, being in that position is a dangerous place to be. I had lunch with somebody or, or, or something this week with somebody, and they said to me, have you noticed the houses back in a certain part of, of Canton? There's some houses back there that are selling for $600,000. I went, left that little meeting, and my son called me and said, hey, we finally pulled the bullet on a house. I said, great moving to Austin, Texas, for those of you that don't know. I said, great, what'd you get? And he sent me pictures. And when I looked at it and saw what he was going to pay for this house, I about died. He has got the world by the tail. And there's a danger in that. There's a real danger in being and realizing that you're set. Nehemiah was set. Why did he ask about Jerusalem. He was secure. The pension, the 403B was doing good, the 401K, whatever it was. Nehemiah asks for this reason. And I want you to look at this next verse. This is not going to be a verse in Nehemiah. I'm going back to Jeremiah. And the reason I'm going back to Jeremiah is because Jeremiah preached before enduring the captivity. 
So before they go into captivity, I want you to look at what Jeremiah, God asked this through Jeremiah the prophet. Who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will grieve for you? And who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? See, God's saying, you're going into captivity. I've dealt with you for years. I've dealt with you for decades. I've dealt with you for centuries. You will not listen. You will not pay attention. So Israel, Jerusalem, tell me this. When you go into captivity and when you are isolated beyond all isolation, you lose all that you have, who's going to care? Now the people, one, they didn't believe what God was saying at the time to begin with. But the second thing is, they didn't care if anybody didn't care. But can I tell you what God knew? God knew that he had Nehemiah in the lineup. God knew that he had Nehemiah out there in the pitcher's area warming up. When God asked the question through Jeremiah, 150 years before they actually went into captivity, I may have those years wrong, don't hold me to that, but when he, had, when he asked it before they went into captivity, what you need to know is this, God knew the answer, but nobody else did. So back in Nehemiah, they said to him, this is an answer to Nehemiah's question. The remnant there in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, I told you already, and I'm going to talk in a little bit about Nehemiah being a cupbearer. But let me just say this to you. He was the cupbearer for the king of Persia whose name was Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was that king from 463 to 4, 464 to 423 B.C. Being the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes meant major responsibility. He drank the king's wine and tasted the king's food before the king did to be sure nobody was poisoning the king. He had to be a person of character. Somebody who could really be trusted. And he was a Jew. And the thing more than anything I want you to see is that Nehemiah is in Susa. Because God wanted Nehemiah in Susa. You know we know somebody who had been in Susa before Nehemiah. It was a woman called Esther. When she was there, her uncle said to her these words, Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know what her uncle Mordecai said to her? said, you're here because God wants you here. You're in the position you're in because God has placed you in that position. Nehemiah, you are where you are right now because God has placed you in that position. When Daniel was in Babylon, Daniel was there because God had placed him in that position. Strangely enough, if you go back to Genesis verses 37 to 50, we hear about 13 times that Joseph, you know the Joseph story, that Joseph, in, in the King James Bible, it says a butler. And the reason it says butler is because of the old king's English, people had butlers. But the reality is the word that's there is actually cupbearer. Joseph served as a cupbearer. And he was there because God placed him there. And church, let me tell you something this morning. God places who he needs where he wants them at his will. And here's Nehemiah. And he asks about Judah. And the answer he got wasn't good. The city's in rubble. 
It had been run over 140 years ago, and it is a mess. And in particular, what stands out, and I know you've heard this preached before, but I want to paint a picture for you. I can only think of one person here that's been to Jerusalem. Maybe there's more, and I don't know it. But I want to paint a picture for you of what it means when it says the walls were torn down. The eastern wall of the old city in Jerusalem was a hill. And in order to facilitate not only the building of homes, but the planting of crops, it's built in steps. Are you with me? So there's a plane up here high, and then they go out a little, actually they'd start from the bottom. There's a whoo, big pile of dirt, then a retaining wall, then come back enough for, for some people to live, put another retaining wall in, build back, put another retaining wall in, and it looks like stair steps going up. And the strongest wall on that eastern portion going up that hill would have been the one at the very bottom. It was the most substantial, it was the most important, and that's the one that Nehemiah is told is torn down. And what that means, if you think about it, if you've ever had any work with retaining walls, <laughs> that one drops, give it a little time and some rain, the next one drops, the next one drops, and pretty soon Jerusalem, its fortification is completely gone. Now what's really interesting about this is, to me, if you listen, I think you'll find it interesting. Somebody had already tried to rebuild that wall. If you've ever read the book of Ezra, you find there that the wall had been worked on before. In fact, this is what I find interesting. In the old, old, older Bibles, Ezra and Nehemiah are not two books. They're one book because they actually succeed each other in kind of like a historical kind of a format. So I want to take you back to Ezra for a minute. And what happened is, some people went back and they began to rebuild that wall. But as is always the case, somebody from outside got their nose into it. And these two gentlemen wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes. Now pay attention. The same king. The same king that Nehemiah is now serving. And here's the letter they sent to Artaxerxes, the king. And this is found in the book of Ezra. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greetings. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they'll not pay tribute, custom, or toll and the royal revenues will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn. This city is rebellious. It's hurtful to kings and provinces. And that sedition was stirred up by them from of old. That's why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. In the very next verses, the king puts out a decree that anybody that works on that wall will be killed. The building's got to stop. Now, if you haven't caught on yet, Nehemiah 1, 1 to 11, 
is Nehemiah realizing that his city, Jerusalem, is in ruins. And by the time you get to the 11th verse, Nehemiah is going to go to the king. And I want you to remember what I just told you a moment ago. It's that same king, King Artaxerxes, who said if anybody rebuilds the wall, they'll be put to death. Fourth verse, Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. What were the words he heard? The wall is destroyed. He sat down and wept, and he mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You ever seen somebody when their heart's moved? I mean, when they're really touched, Nehemiah's heart was touched. When it says he sat down, please understand that meant a word of mourning. You remember when Job's family was wiped out and his friends came? What'd they do? They sat down with him for seven days. It's, it's a word for mourning. Nehemiah goes into mourning. You may remember that in the exile that we're talking about, the very exile that we're talking about, the psalmist wrote about it. And listen to what he said in one, Psalm 137.1. You'll know the verse. Listen to what he said. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. See what they wrote? They said, when we think back on what it was like to be in Jerusalem, and now we're here in exile, we went into mourning. We sat down by the rivers of Babylon. And the Bible says one other thing. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, and I fasted, and I prayed. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. I want you to see something that some of you won't like to hear. But I, I have to point this out. I want you to notice that in his prayer, he uses the word we. Nehemiah wasn't even alive when they were taken into exile. But he's acknowledging sin, not only of his fathers, but for himself. You say, Joel, so, so what's the point? When you have a real sense of who God is, and Nehemiah had it, when you have a real sense of how awesome God is, you will begin to realize just how not so awesome you are. You will begin to realize, when you realize how holy God is, you will suddenly get a picture for how unholy I am. If you don't believe that, I would remind you of Isaiah. These words will be familiar, but listen to them because they, they serve the purpose today. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. That's his robe. There were seraphim above him. Each had six wings. He covered two with his face and two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook 
at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Did you see what happened to Isaiah? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw his holiness. He saw just how wonderful and awesome God was. And what's he say? Woe is me. I am lost. I am, I've got unclean lips. I live amongst people that are unclean. What are we going to do? It's what a sense of who God is will do to you. And Nehemiah prays. Not just for forgiveness of his fathers, some of whom were now dead, but he identified himself with that same sinful nature. Do you remember in the book of Matthew? Take that back, Luke. Do you remember when Jesus comes down in the morning and he needs somewhere to preach and the disciples have just come in from fishing all night and they're cleaning their nets and they say, get in the boat, we'll take you out. And they go out in the boat and Jesus preaches to the crowd on the shore for a while. And after he's preached, he turns to Peter and he says to Peter, have you caught anything? And Peter says, we have fished all night and we've caught nothing. Jesus says, drop those nets again. Peter says, you don't get it. We've been out here. We want to go home and go to bed. We were cleaning our nets when you got on the boat. We want to get back home and go to bed so we can go back out tonight. Jesus says, drop the nets. Remember what happens? They drop the nets, and it's the King James says a drought of fish, a draught of fish, D-R-A-U-G-H-T, however you say that. But lo and behold, they can't get it in the boat. And do you remember what Peter's response is? Peter looks at Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I want you to think about that. When you get a real picture of who God is, and I think Nehemiah was right, and I'll tell you why. You know, you, we live in a day and age where we say, I didn't do anything wrong, Travis did that. The rose between two thorns this morning, I'm sure you never heard your kids tell you, it was him when it was him. I mean, nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. Do you remember in Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan? Remember he took some stuff and he hid it under his tent? And God says, nobody's going anywhere until we fix the sin. And it was just Achan that did it. No, nobody else knew what happened. But you know what God said? God said, Israel sinned against me. I want you to think about that for a minute. God didn't say, Achan has sinned against me. God knew who sinned. God knew who, where it was. He knew who had stuffed it under their tent. He knew who the person was. But God knows that we're all sinful. He said, Israel sinned. One time, they, <laughs> this just popped in my head, and it's usually when I get dangerous, but I'm going to let it fly out of my mouth, and we'll see how this goes. One time, I got called up in Tuscarawas County to court to be a juror. It was a murder trial. I did not have time to be on a jury. Now, you can say, Joel, that's so irresponsible, and you would be correct. But they took me in, and the, the attorney or whatever it was, this guy's quest, asking questions. He sits me down, and he says, what do you think about this trial and about, you know, whether somebody's innocent or guilty? I said, we're all guilty. He said, next. (laughs) 
And you know, if I could rewrite the Beatitudes, I'd add this one. And, and please listen to this, because I think it's what God is thinking in all this. Blessed are those who know their own sinful nature without a draught of fish, without the temple walls shaking, who simply sense the presence of a holy God and are able to acknowledge their own fallen nature. That's who Nehemiah was. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. In the seventh verse, look at what he prays. We've acted corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded. Now, here Nehemiah is going to go back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers where God said to Moses, you know, if you do, if the people do what they're supposed to do, if they follow my law, I will be with them. If not, bad things are going to happen. And here's, he's just going to rehearse that. He says, remember the word you commanded your servant Moses when you said, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. You know what the Jews call that? They call that the diaspora. You know, after the Babylonian exile, there were more Jews outside of Jerusalem than were inside. They were dispersed. That's what that word means. The diaspora, they were just everywhere. Exactly what God said would happen, happened. He says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts or in, in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them together and bring them to the place that I've chosen for them to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I want to say something right here that you need to know. Listen to that 10th verse. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You know what Nehemiah knew more than anything in this verse? He knew that, yes, Israel had been exiled. He knew that they had been held accountable for their sin. He knew that what God had allowed to happen was more difficult than anything that you could ever imagine for them. I mean, they were in Jerusalem and they were just put out, displaced. Everything they ever worked for, everything they ever lived for was gone and they were taken off to another place. They lost it all. There's one thing Nehemiah knew and he never forgot. It's in this verse. They were still God's people. It's a simple thought, but I want you to get it. God corrected them. God chastened them. God disciplined them. But God never forsook them. In the 11th verse, here's what he says. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And don't you love how that verse ends? Now I was cupbearer to the king. He, he, he has prayed to God and he said, Lord, forgive us. But Lord, I've got faith and I've got confidence in you enough that not only will you forgive, but you'll restore and you will not fail us. And I'm the cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer to the king who had told those people not to build that wall. I tell you, if, 
a little fact about our tax series that isn't um, readily preached at times. It really plays into the story today. Our tax father was king. And the way he died is very important. He died because his cupbearer poisoned him. Doesn't that change this story tremendously? Nehemiah prays for success. You say, man, what do you mean he prayed for success? He prayed for success. He's going to the king, whose father was killed by the cupbearer, who has ordered that the wall not be rebuilt, to say, can I go rebuild the wall? And what I really want you to see, I guess, church, is one of the things that we really need to see is that Nehemiah didn't just pray. Nehemiah pulled up his boots and put the rubber to the road. He uses the word success. Give success to your servant this day. And he was cupbearer to the king. Let me say a few things about being cupbearer, and I'm almost to my bottom line. You know that. That's the clue word for, uh-oh, he's finishing, right? <laughs> so we're almost there. Think about Joseph. Genesis 37 to 50, Joseph, in light of being the butler or the cupbearer. And recognize that the qualities of Joseph, as well as a few others in Scripture who were cupbearers, would have been something like this. He would have been a well-educated person. That would have been Nehemiah. He probably would have been handsome. I went to the hospital this week to get a test done. And talking to the lady at the desk, I've seen her before we know each other. She's telling me she's going to watch the Browns game. I said, oh, I didn't know you were a Browns fan. She had the Browns shirt on. She said, well, she said, you know, really, I'm not a Browns fan. She said, but isn't that coach hot? <laughs> I said, you're not watching football. She said, no, I'm not, but don't tell my husband. I said, okay. <laughs> Nehemiah would have looked good. Nehemiah would have known good food and good wine. Nehemiah probably would have been a good friend. Somebody whose ear was trusted. Nehemiah would have been our version of the chief of staff for the president. He would have controlled the ins and the outs and the comings and the goings. More than anything else, he would have been trusted. He's the king's cupbearer. His integrity is impeccable. He didn't get here because he bet some money on the lottery. He got here because he worked hard and he protected his heart. And he's praying for success. He's praying for success in something he never dreamed he'd have to do. Nehemiah was already successful. Did you ever think of that? He did not have to pray. For success. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open a window that I could get in trouble for here. Usually when I do something like this, I ask my kids or my wife before I do it. But 
Now I'm going to just do it without asking. That son in Seattle that's now in, where is he moving to? Austin. <laughs> Got to get that in my head. When he's going for the job interview for this job, he calls me up three times. Dad, will you pray? He's going to buy this house. He says, we got it narrowed down to what we want. Will you pray? I said, yeah. I want to tell you about that for a minute. Let me tell you, this is a good side story. You want me to be quiet, I know, but listen, this is so good. Guess what? On that first choice of houses, he didn't get it. We prayed about it. He didn't get it. The reason he didn't get it was because there was a problem that he didn't know. But we prayed, and God opened that up going to that second house, the one he's getting, the one he's bought, and he says, Dad, will you pray? And I want to stop and tell you something about my son, about all my kids, actually. And you can say, well, you're a braggart, Joel. My kids are successful. They, they, they have done far more than I've ever done, every one of them, and they're in their 20s. They've done, isn't that what you want? Jake's coming to his dad for prayer. Jake, you don't need for me to pray that you get that house. You're good, man. You don't have to pray for me that you get that job. You have worked so hard. They called you. They, they sent somebody hunting for you, Jake. You don't need me to pray about this. I want you to see something in Nehemiah. Nehemiah shouldn't have had to pray for success. And what that tells me about Nehemiah, and this is the part, and this is where it really applies to all of us, certainly my son Jake, what I want you to see about Nehemiah is this. For all of his success, for all of Nehemiah's success, his education, his trustworthiness, all those things that I listed a moment ago, for all of that success that he had to have to get to that position, he did not become a spiritual failure. Because listen, church, I want to tell you something. That's what usually happens. With many people, they become a worldly success, but what they sacrifice are you with me? What they sacrificed to get there is so very incredibly costly. Nehemiah still had a heart for his people and for the sin that got him to where they were. He learned from that. He didn't ask, like I so often do, Lord, raise someone up. Lord, get, we need somebody right now for, will you please do this? Nehemiah raised his hand and said, here am I, Lord, send me. And the reason that's so important, remember how I started this. If you really care for that pet, you'll get the DNA test. They don't care, I don't care. The question is, who cares? And I want to point something out to you. Abraham cared, and he got Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses cared, and though he thought he couldn't, he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. David cared, and though he was the smallest and ruddiest of the family, he brought the kingdom of Israel back to the Lord. Esther cared. She saved the nation from genocide. Paul cared. And you got two-thirds of your New Testament and a whole lot of stories about missionaries because he did. More than anything else, J 
Jesus cares. He died on a cross for our sins. You know what I think? I think God's still looking for people to care. People like Nehemiah, who want to know the facts. How is it in Jerusalem? Who are going to weep over the needs and the facts. Who are going to pray for God's help. Who are going to put the rubber to the road. Years ago, and I, I'll bet some of you here saw this, years ago there used to be a thing that floated, or before we had the internet, before we had memes, when what we had was typewriters, probably not even electric ones, okay? There was this thing that floated around and preachers used it from the pulpits, and it, and it took all these, um, these, you know, slogans from big major companies and, and, and applied them to Jesus. One, one, for instance, would be Jesus is like Coke. He's the real thing. Remember that their slogan used to be, it's the real thing? <laughs> the one that applies today has to do with Hallmark cards. It said Jesus is like Hallmark cards when you care enough to send the very best. Remember when Hallmark used to say that, when you care enough to send the very best? So what did God do? He sent Jesus. Can I tell you something, church? David cared, Moses cared, Esther cared, all those cares that I gave you. Jesus cared, God gave Esther. Nehemiah cares. But more than anything, I want you to know that God cares. And while God did send Jesus 2,000 years ago, when Jesus left, he sent you. I don't want to put any responsibility on you that you can't handle. But I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to process that for a minute. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He said, Go. And then he left. On the day that he ascended to heaven, they said, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And he checked out and has not been back. Just give us the promise that he's coming. But until that day, he sent his very best, and that's you. And that brings me to my bottom line. Life will be perfect when we learn that God's occupation is our vocation. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. You say, well, Nehemiah had a job. <laughs> you know, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. But Nehemiah wanted his job aligned with God's purposes. And so he prayed. He said, Lord, there's a problem back in, back in my home, where I belong, where you said I'd be. And Lord, we've sinned and we, we need forgiveness. But we also need to get back there. And the only way that's going to happen is if you make a path. And so, God, I'm going to care, but you're going to have to work this out. And he was the king's cupbearer. But he occupied his heart and his mind, not with his worldly vocation, but with his spiritual vocation.
God, what do you care about? God says, I care about my people. And Nehemiah says, here am I. Send me. You know, earlier today you sang a song, and we are not going to sing it again, but I just want to point out to you what it said. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. When it comes down to it, when Nehemiah prayed and said, Lord, you're going to have to give me success, he was trusting God for that, wasn't he? He was trusting God for that. When you get and have God's occupation become your vocation, become what you do, You walk by faith and not by sight. We're going to sing, I need thee every hour. Then we'll close in prayer.